Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fast Past, a history podcast in close to 30 minutes or less. Thank you all for tuning in again. As always, I'm Megan. And uh, I'm Jason. Hello. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed our topics for the first month of not assassinations. This week's episode is going to be a lot heavy, heavier than most of what we're going to do. Yeah. When Jason and I were picking topics to do, the one that we decided on was called Crimes Against Humanity. Now, In our pursuit for history that is rarely told, we knew we would have to dive into this topic. History can be funny sometimes and ridiculous than others, but it's also important to talk about the times that we should be ashamed of. The time in history that shows just how cruel and awful humans can be. So today's topic is going to be the Rwandan genocide. This is going to be a very heavy episode. So this is just a warning right now. Don't expect anything lighthearted. Because there's nothing really lighthearted about this topic at all. And sadly, genocide is a topic that is rarely taught about in schools. And maybe if we brought it up and how ridiculously often that it happens, maybe we'll get people to want to make a change. When it happens or when it is happening, we often can't see the signs if we don't know about them. So hopefully we'll be able to teach you guys the signs, which is how we're going to begin this. So there are eight stages to a genocide. First stage is classification. This means creating an us-versus-them mentality. This would be based off of religion, race, or ethnicity, etc. Like in the Holocaust, the Nazis created a very clear us-versus-them when it came to the Jewish people. Second stage is symbolization. This means labeling them as Jews and distinguishing them by color or dress or symbols. The third stage is dehumanization. This is when one group equates another with animals, insects, or vermin. This could also, they could also refer to them as a disease. Dehumanization overcomes the normal human revulsion against murder. It is around this stage that propaganda becomes more important and heavily used. The fourth stage is organization. Genocides are always organized, usually by the states. Often they use militias to provide a sense of deniability of state responsibility. Sometimes organizations are informal. Other times special army units are trained and armed. At this stage of the genocide, plans are made for killing. Fifth stage is polarization. This is when extremists drive the groups apart. Hate groups broadcast propaganda. Laws are sometimes made against intermarriage and social interaction. Extremists target moderates, intimidating them and trying to silence them, since they would be the ones to speak out and oftentimes they are killed. The sixth stage is preparation. Victims are identified and separated out because of their ethnicity or their religious identity. Death lists are drawn up. Members of victim groups are forced to wear identifying symbols. Their property is expropriated. They're often separated into ghettos, uh, deported to concentration camps, or confined in a famine-struck region and starved. The seventh stage is extermination. It begins and quickly becomes mass killing. Legally, that mass killing part is what makes it a genocide. It is, quote, extermination, quote, to the killers because they do not believe their victims are fully human, thanks to the process that we just went through. When it is sponsored by the state, the armed forces often work with militias to do the killing. Sometimes the genocides result in revenge killings by a group against another, creating a downward whirlpool-like cycle of bilateral genocide. The last stage is denial. This always follows a genocide. It is one of the surest indicators that a genocide took place. The perpetrators of genocide dig up the mass graves, burn the bodies, and try to cover up the evidence and intimidate the witnesses. They deny that they committed any crimes and often blame what happened on the victims. 
Investigations into the crimes take place, but those in power typically continue to rule until they are driven out by force or flee into exile. Now, the UN defines genocide as, quote, any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in part or in whole, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, desperately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in part or in whole, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So before we begin, we begin talking about Rwanda, I want to open with the first three paragraphs of this book called Media and the Rwandan Genocide by A. Thompson and Kofi Annan. I think it will help us understand the sheer magnitude of this genocide. Quote, The images are so disturbing that they are difficult to watch. Two women kneel amongst the bodies of those who have already been slain. They are at the side of a dirt road in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda. Their final moments are captured on video by a British journalist, one of the few foreign reporters still left in the country, who is recording clandestinely from the top of a building nearby. Remarkably, during a genocide that claimed as, million, as many as a million lives, this is one of the only times a killing is recorded by the media. In the footage, one of the women is pleading, first clasping her hands in front of her as if in prayer, then throwing open her arms, appealing to the throng of men who are milling about nearby, holding machetes and sticks. Further along the road, there are bodies of others who have been dragged out of their homes and killed. The woman continues to beg, but the man seems oblivious to her. A young boy dressed in a t-shirt strolls past, giving the women only a backward glance. At one point, you can see a man in the crowd clutching something in his left hand. It appears to be a radio. Minutes go by, and the woman continues to plead for her life. The other figures crouched beside her barely flinches. Men yielding sticks in one hand and machetes in the other move forward and begin to pound the bodies that are already strewn around the two women, sticking the corpses again and again. One man gives the body a final crack, as if driving a stake into the ground, then slings his stick over his shoulder and amples off. All the while, the woman continues to wave her arms and plead. A white pickup truck approaches and drives through the scene. The windshield wipers are flopping back and forth. One of the men huddled in the back of the vehicle waves a hand at the woman, who is kneeling on the ground. He taunts her with a greeting. Finally, two men approach. One, dressed in dark trousers and a white t-shirt, wind up to strike the pleading woman. He has the posture of someone who is about to whip an animal. She recoils. Then he strikes her on the head with a stick he is clutching in his right hand. She crumples to the ground, then suffers more blows from her murderer. Almost at the same time, the other woman is struck down as well by another assailant. Her head is nearly lobbed off by the initial blow. Finally, the two men walk away casually, leaving the bodies to squirm. In the distance, there is sound of birdsong. The imagery in those lines break my heart. I find that when I'm researching any kind of atrocity, it's hard for me to look at the images of this sheer villainy. It's hard to look at, and it should be. It isn't normal, and it isn't okay, but these genocides keep happening and happening. So we have to educate ourselves so that when we see it happening before our eyes, we can act. So now we're going to get into the Rwandan genocide. This is actually one of the more well-known genocides of the 20th century. Now, as with any other genocide, this didn't just happen. This process took years. In fact, this specific genocide stemmed back to imperialism. 
which honestly is where a lot of problems have stemmed from. Imperial Germany colonized the Tutsi Kingdom, which was located at the center of the country back in 1898. In 1910, Germany's colonial military force invaded Hutu kingdoms in northern Rwanda, crushing resistance there with the aid of Tutsi forces. This was the beginning, the colonial conquest that intensified differences and exacerbated conflict between the Hutu and the Tutsi. Now, this continued after Belgium took over Germany's previous areas, including Rwanda, in 1916. The Belgian rulers solidified the differences between the Hutu and Tutsi subjects by issuing them with identification cards that clearly stated their ethnic affiliation. Which is one of the stages of genocide. Beginning all the way back in 1916. See, the thing with genocides are they don't happen quickly. They happen over time. They take time. They poison two people against one another over such a long period of time that you forget what it was like before you felt that way. Eventually, Belgium's colonies gained independence in the 1950s, and the Tutsi, the minority, gained power. This led to a revolution by the Hutu in 1959. This revolution got rid of the Tutsi monarchy and drove tens of thousands of Tutsi out of Rwanda. Hutu farmers occupied the now-abandoned Tutsi lands. The United Nations actually made a special commission inquiry into the revolution and found that the violence had been propelled by Hutu racism that resembled, quote, Nazism against the Tutsi minority. In 1962, the first president of Rwanda was elected, Gregory Kayabanda, a Hutu. He declared independence, but just the next year, there was a violent outbreak that killed several thousand more Tutsi. It was later quoted without proof in 1994 during the genocide that Kayabanda had threatened the Tutsis back in 1963 with, quote, a total and sudden end to the Tutsi race. There's just no hiding it anymore. This is a blatant threat of extinction of an entire people. Local persecution of the Tutsi and ethnic violence escalated again in 1972 after the Burundis, which is a country below Rwanda's, Tutsi military massacred 200,000 Tutsi, I mean Hutu. In 1973, a coup took place and military commander Juvenel Habyarimana overthrew the Kayabanda regime. At first, the new president was concerned with reversing the balance of power among the Hutu. He proclaimed a policy of ethnic reconciliation. It sounds like he wants to make progress. Yeah, it sounded like it, except that's not exactly what he wanted at all. He called himself a, quote, pure-blood Hutu and allowed a purist anti-Tutsi faction of Hutu led by his wife to assume prominence in his regime's inner councils. Then the president's political party became the sole legal political party. It sounds just like Trujillo. Yeah. Har Habyarimanda's regime is now considered, quote, proto-genocidal. He did what many leaders of other racist regimes do. He stressed and romanticized agriculture, which was the pathway to a more general idealism. He claimed that justification for his coup was, quote, to ban once and for all the spirit of intrigue and the feudal mentality and to, quote, give back to labor and individual yield its real value. Quote, on the grounds that, quote, the one who refuses to work is harmful to society, unquote. He echoed some other genocides by trying to make the country a single class of people. He wanted them all to be referred to as peasants, which happened in the Cambodian genocide, which is for another day. Then he announced in 1986, quote, a country is constructed by the sweat on our face, but not by the useless speculations, unquote. A corrupt Hutu historian, Nayamana, 
said, quote, the spectacular engagement of the Rwandan intellectuals who, trained for office work and therefore for the daft handling of language, pen, and paper, have taken up the hose, the pruning knives, and any other material tool, and have joined the peasants' masses to move earth with their hands and to lie the effective reality of manual labor, unquote. Now, let me ask you, Jay, why would a president stress agriculture so much, stress that intellectuals toss aside their work for agriculture? Because educated people would be able to see through this very thinly veiled facade of bullshit that he's spewing. Yeah. They wanted to get rid of the country's educated people. They wanted them detached from what was happening around them. They wanted them out of schools. It makes it easier to commit a genocide if nobody argues against it or nobody is educated enough to realize it's wrong. It's also worth noting that President Habyarimana had Nazi literature in his home. So he took the whole deep-rooted historical racism from Chuhio and meshed it with the extermination factor of Nazi Germany in order to create this deadly hybrid of the two. That is Rwanda. Yeah. Now, this genocide was very interesting by its choice of killing others. It wasn't done with guns or gas. It was done with tools, hoes, machetes, sticks, branches. These were weapons of intimate murder. And Rwanda received a shipment of a million machetes before the genocide, which were the most common weapons used during it from China. Agricultural tools with dual purposes. But yet, there is more. In the mid-1980s, quote, Rwandan academics and intellectuals began to write openly about the difficult conditions faced by rural cultivators, the exploitative practices of merchants, unquote. But the regime deflected against any criticism that the intellectuals gave of their agrarian culture and urged the rural population to, quote, have their own means of information, allowing a last rural truth to come out, unquote. He's discrediting the people who know what they're talking about. This guy's smart, manipulative as hell, but smart. Now, this leads us to 1990, four years before the actual genocide. The Tutsi refugees made an attempt to reoccupy the country, and the state-sponsored genocidal massacre of the Tutsis began. This was four years before the actual genocide, too. Officials warned that killers were, were lurking in the nearby forest and that they were there to, quote, clean the brush. This provoked a Hutu reaction. A propaganda magazine, Kangura, proclaimed, quote, the Hutu, in fact, they are willing to fight against anyone who would take their identity from them, unquote. The Habyarimana regime increasingly organized themselves as a, quote, Hutu power regime. They launched a new massacre against Tutsi civilians. In 1992, Kangura magazine was posting more appeals like, quote, find out against again, your ethnicity, because the Tutsi have taught you not to recognize it. You belong to an important ethnicity of Bantu group. Know that a proud and bloodthirsty minority mixed with you in order to dilute you, divide you, dominate you, and massacre you. The nation is artificial, but ethnically it is eternal. What the fuck? And this magazine was the propaganda leader. They put out articles trying to convince people that the Hutu and Tutsi did not even speak the same freaking language. They adopted a biological metaphor, calling the Tutsi, quote, cockroaches. A March issue had a title of, quote, a cockroach cannot give birth to a butterfly, unquote. In that article was the, quote, a hist the history of Rwanda shows us clearly that a Tutsi stays always exactly the same, that he has never changed. The malice, the evil are just as we knew them in a history of our country, unquote. RTLM was another important player in and before the genocide, 
This was a radio station that opened up its airways to any, quote, peasant that wanted to express their feelings or views. It combined racism and the agrarian theme. Some broadcasts that happened three weeks before the genocide were, quote, while a Hutu is cultivating, he has a gun. You should have them with you when you're cultivating. When the enemy comes up, you shoot at each other. When he retreats, you take up your hole and you cultivate, unquote. There were radio stations that popularized, popularized the phrases like clear the bush and, quote, separate the grass from the millet and, quote, pull out the poison ivy together with its roots, unquote. It is important to note that both this radio station and the magazine were established by extremists that surrounded the president. Now, the next thing to happen is very important. I cannot stress how very, very important this is. The president, Habyarimana, died in a still unexplained plane crash on April 6, 1994. The Hutu power elements immediately seized control of the country. The Hutu power propaganda focused on past injustices and a fear of future contamination. The Tutsi cockroaches, quotes, were a presence that needed a, quote, big cleanup. It advocated a, quote, final solution to the ethnic problem, unquote. The killings happened almost immediately after. They went from slowly but surely to all at once. And that's the problem with genocides. That's why they're so dangerous and so hard to catch because it's years of buildup just slightly under the radar to mass extermination. The killing started in Kigali through the night of April 6th through 7th. The first people targeted were Hutu moderators who were willing to share power between the Hutu and Tutsi and the Tutsi themselves. The Hutu were killing their own people. The campaign quickly fanned out across the country. Many of the hundreds of thousands of Rwandans who were slaughtered were huddled in churches for sanctuary. Death squads killed them with grenades. Killing frenzies happened. There were so many people dying that death squads sometimes severed the Achilles tendon on the heels of their victims so they couldn't run away and killers could leave them and return later to finish the job. Teachers killed students. Neighbors slaughtered neighbors as local officials helped to organize the killings. At the height of the slaughter in May 1994, the Hutu Power private radio station, RTLM, called for the continuing efforts to, quote, exterminate the Tutsi from the globe, unquote, and, quote, make them disappear all once and for all, unquote. The short-lived Hutu power regime killed thousands more Hutu as well, especially intellectuals and others in the southern part of the country who, quote, lacked the same zeal for its campaign to exterminate the Tutsi. One of the over one million victims was Rosalie Gikanda, G- 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 a widow of the last Tutsi monarch. Her death was tragic as well. To quote from Ben Kiernan's book, Blood and Soil, which I have been quoting this whole time, on April 20th, 1994, Lieutenant Pierre Bizamana and his unit burst into the former queen's Butari home, where she and her mother lived as devout Catholics with a group of women and girls. The soldiers took her and six others in the back of a pickup truck, shot them behind the National Museum, and returned two days later to kill her centurion mother. These killings were personal and brutal. It shows just how brainwashed people can become and how susceptible they are to manipulation. Think back to the first three paragraphs I read to you from. Nobody batted an eyelash. They didn't consider these people human. They thought they were evil, inhuman beings, which is why I hate using the term evil when discussing genocide, because evil correlates to inhuman. It's almost an excuse for their actions, but these people knew exactly what they were doing the whole time. Just like the Holocaust, they acted freely in this abhorrent manner. 
Now, most international news organizations initially misunderstood the nature of these killings happening in Rwanda. They thought it was tribal warfare, not genocide. When killings intensified, reporters declined. Many of the journals left with foreigners. Eventually, international media did report on Rwanda, but they reported what had happened after the fact. There were pictures of dead, bloated corpses strewn across the road or floating in rivers. There are no known images of the crimes themselves other than that one video recording because there was no media presence. Only the aftermath of the atrocities. The killings ended in July of 1994 when the Rwandan Patriotic Front, a Tutsi-led rebel movement, marched into the capital and seized control of the country. The genocide lasted 100 days and an estimated death count is around 1 million. Think about that. 1 million people just gone. Now, I know what I was thinking when I learned about this. Where the fuck was the UN? The place that coined the term genocide after the Holocaust. The people who promised never again, but let this happen anyway. Well, prior to the genocide beginning, peacekeeper troops were already in Rwanda. After the plane crash and the extremist takeover, the, peace killers, the peacekeepers were targeted and 10 were killed. After that, the Belgian government ordered its troops home, and the UN Security Council dramatically cut back the UN peacekeeping force. This cut came after the Canadian commander, Romeo Dallaire's request for a larger force in Rwanda, citing Hutu extremists. He was in Rwanda the whole time, trying to help whatever and however he could with this little force. There had been reports sent to the UN from even 1900 about the violence between the two groups. Dallaire lacked intelligence and data and manpower in Rwanda. He was equipped with hand-me-down vehicles from UN previous missions, and only 80 of the 300 were usable. When medical supplies ran out, they were told there was no money for resupply. It was hard to find batteries, ammunitions, and spare parts in Rwanda. Countries sent troops to get their people out, but not to help with peacekeeping efforts. They left Rwanda alone because no one saw it as a, quote, political priority, which kills me. Later, there was a war crimes tribunal established, and it was found that there was a mass failure by the United Nations and the international community as a whole to act and protect those who were targeted and being killed. So it was only after the genocide in 2005 that the UN would create R2P, a global principle which refers to states towards that refers to states toward their populations and towards all populations at risk of genocide and other mass atrocity crimes. R2P stipulates three pillars of responsibility. Pillar one, every state has the responsibility to protect its populations from four mass atrocity crimes, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. Pillar two, the wider international community has the responsibility to encourage and assist individual states in meeting that responsibility. Pillar three, if a state is manifestly failing to protect its populations, the international community must be prepared to take appropriate collective action in a timely and decisive manner and in accordance with the UN Charter. There is one major loophole, however, and that is if any state refuses to admit or acknowledge the fact that there are one of these atrocities happening, then said country doesn't have to get involved in the responsibility to protect, which is why some incidents have and will continue to slip through the cracks until the UN steps up to fix it. That's... That's all I've got to say about that, and the rest is history, and hopefully it stays that way. 
I know this hasn't been a fun episode at all to hear. Um, it hasn't been one easy for me to read or write about, but it's something that needs to be spoken about. So I want to thank you all for listening and sticking in through this. I'm sorry that it's hard to hear, but by listening and educating yourselves on these subjects, it is helping us all make strides toward ending violence like this. And I promise next week's episode won't be as heavy, but sometimes episodes like these are needed. Thank you. Bye.